scripture reading today comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You can follow along um, up here on the screens or um, turn there in your Bibles. Again, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is the word of the Lord. You know, one of the weird things about getting older is that you end up realizing that you know some of the people who have achieved uh, like some mild levels of renown or fame in some regards. I, I have two former students that have now become musicians in Nashville uh, who have actually done fairly well for themselves. Trent Dabbs and Dave Barnes are making their way through Nashville and doing a great job. And I got to reconnect with them uh, in these last few months for different uh, various circumstances. But one of the things that I noticed is, and things that sort of even, even surprised me, is that I actually kind of like their music. And whenever it comes up on shuffle, I always get this very weird sensation of listening to and enjoying the art from the people that I know. And even being around them in these last few months, I, I kind of got a little intimidated by them. Never really know what to say. Find yourself getting a little bit nervous for weird reasons. Well, with that in mind, I want to read a quote to you from J.I. Packer, who was talking about what it must have been like for Moses to deliver to the Jewish people the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis, right? Jewish people have left Egypt and they've escaped and whatever else. <laughs> what are they going to think about what Moses says in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Well, Packer says this. He says, it's as if Moses says, now that you have enjoyed these works of art, you must shake hands with the artist. Since you were thrilled by the music, we will now introduce you to the composer. Poser. In other words, there's this normal sense of almost intimidation when you're in the presence of someone who is responsible for something that you think is beautiful or wonderful or amazing or interesting. And so this is exactly what the Apostles' Creed is doing when it says that fundamental to Christian belief is this idea, this conviction, that God is the, quote, maker of heaven and earth. And in John chapter 1, John begins to unpack exactly, in terms of what our series is, why believing that God is our creator matters to us. We've been focusing this, focusing this summer on faith's object as a way of starting to try to build our faith. And we arrive at a doctrine that, like I said before we started the service, is so important to get right. The doctrine of creation. What do Christians believe about the world around us? Well, I want to unpack that in three headings. We want to look at creation and God, first of all. Creation and the world, second. And then finally, do some application about how it applies to us. First of all, creation and God. Look, in John 1, what John is doing is, is he's retelling the story of creation. But what makes it different this time is he says that the story actually has Jesus as the main character. In verse 3 is what the key is. He says, all things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus, not anything that is made was made. He goes on to explain in verse 14 that in the light of that creative power that was put on, put on display... 
when suddenly the apostles realized that they were with Jesus, who himself was responsible for speaking the universe into existence, it kind of freaked them out. (laughs) John's expression is, he says, we beheld his glory. They realized they were in the presence of superlativeness. Okay, so enter into my existential moment of being a little bit intimidated by my sort of semi-famous friends. There's an appropriate level of anxiety that we, ha- that we experience when we meet anyone who's excellent at something. I mean, think about when you went to the trade professional uh, convention last year. Wasn't there like this energy field around last year's highest grossing salesperson? We naturally feel intimidated when we see somebody who's responsible for, with greatness. Well, the Bible almost everywhere attests to the same thing happening when God's image bears begin to consider the created world around them. Isaiah 40, 28 says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. You hear him kind of freaking out about what he sees? Psalm 8 is another famous one. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In other words, to the degree that whenever we encounter excellence or creativity in other humans and it blows us away, that same thing is to happen when we see God in his creation. Look, here's the point. The Bible wants you to know that because God is creation's author, he's in charge of it all. He is the one who is in control, and his bigness can be seen through the lens of creation. I would argue that when it comes to things that were written in English in particular, our own doctrinal standard of the Westminster Confession of Faith did about as good a job as you can do when they're talking about the nature of God's control over the universe. Let me just give you a couple of samples from one of the sections in the section on the doctrine of God. It says, God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient not standing in need of any creatures which he's made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone the foundation of all being, from whom, and through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. You get the idea. (laughs) The point is, is that there are few diseases that will infect your spiritual life worse than a small view of God. And the best way to explode those small thoughts is to become a student of every corner of God's creation. It's the primary way in which we keep intact the right perspective that he is the creator and I am the creature. So you don't ever get over this God, right? You don't ever, he is immense He's vast. The the way I always love to watch this is whenever you hear scientists, who, by the way, with the James Webb telescope and getting set up and returning all of its amazing pictures, are freaking out again. Having to even rethink some things if, you know, some of the headlines are to be believed. But I always love it when a scientist or an astronomer is trying to explain to people how big the universe is. You ever watch them do this? They always start the same way. They're like, you got to understand the universe is like really big. 
No, 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 no. It's like really, really big. And they start to kind of stretch for ways to describe exactly how large and how big the universe actually is. And they can barely do it. What I find inter- it's interesting, a number of years ago, and y'all, y'all heard me talk about the, the old Hubble telescope deep space picture, which of course has now been improved by James Webb. But I had a student one time who was looking at that and thinking, I don't know, that picture freaks me out. Because I look at it, I think to myself, there's no way that all of this was just for us. Of course, I remember looking at that student being like, I know, right? <laughs> That's kind of cool what God has done for his people. And my point was, is when you combine the bigness of the universe with God's unending care for the crown of his creation, human beings, it is supposed to register in us awe. It's supposed to blow our minds. So already, just from this very first point, we've got a couple of things to help us out. God is distinct from his creation and sovereign over it all. And because that's true, we can, when we look at the world around us, get a bunch of nonverbal cues about his existence. In other words, there's not a better evangelistic plan for people who claim to not believe in God than by simply letting them see the wonders of creation. It's one of the reasons why when even an atheist takes a walk through the woods or something like that, he feels a little bit healed. She begins to see things a little more clearly. She feels better. Why? Because God is there. And that's what we embrace when we embrace the doctrine of creation. Okay, that sets us up nicely for the second point, and that is, how is it oftentimes that we get wrong views of how the world fits in with creation? Well, I stumbled across a commentator who contrasted four different ways in which Christianity's view of creation is different from mistakes, okay? Four different false views, and I can list them pretty simply. Number one, Creation is real, not like what the pantheists say. What's pantheism? Pantheism is this fundamental idea that the material world around us is really an illusion. And if you really want to be mature as a human being, you're supposed to release yourself from physicality, as it were, and be, be, realize yourself into the, the all soul or something to that effect. This is the hallmark of lots of Eastern religion. And I still hear interesting versions of this in our days, especially, I would argue, as the physical constraints on (laughs) our inward impressions become less and less real to this generation, you find people saying things like, I don't know. How do I know that what I'm experiencing is real? It's a sort of internet pundit ass. But Christianity comes along and insists on this fact that because God is behind creation, you can trust what you sense around you. Yes, the world outside is real. You're not dreaming, nor do you need to question every sensation or impression you've received from your simple powers of observation. Time, John says in John 1 that Gray just read for us, had a beginning. In the beginning, there was time. In other words, he's saying there really is a there there. So creation is real, not like the pantheist. Secondly, though, he says creation is good, not like the legalists. This is a big one, because almost from the very beginning of Christian teaching, there were a group of people who tried to insist that the physical world was inherently bad. It was bad. Greco-Roman philosophy taught that the material world was something to be dismissive of. It was something to be hated. So if you were going to be a mature person, a good human, 
It, you lived in, the, in a practice of self-denial, self-pummeling, self-suffering. And pleasure in life at all, in any of its forms, should be immediately suspect. But of course, as one, one author said, Christianity insists that when the Bible says, in the beginning, it's saying that God began the world with his hands in the dirt. God was there. The physical world was so valuable and so good that God actually took on the flesh that he had created and moved among us. Which, by the way, that was not easy for the first Gentile believers to hear. They choked on that. That was not something they wanted to hear. And funny, it actually still kind of bothers us a little bit. I was talking about this just a couple months ago with somebody. When we were talking about where Jesus is now, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Yes, but you do realize that Jesus is in a body now. Like Jesus is still in that's resurrected body. It's a new heavens and new earth body, the kind that we'll get one day in that day when he sets it all up. But there is flesh and blood on the throne of the universe. Does that make you feel a little weird? But it says something, doesn't it? It says that God doesn't think that flesh is inherently bad. So yes, yeah, so we're not pantheists, we're not legalists. Thirdly, creation is designed not like secularism. You know, the secularism is kind of the modern atheistic type who insists that the reason why we have something rather than nothing is simply due to bald, impersonal forces. It's a great quote by one of the early 19th, uh, 20th century scientific historians, Carl Becker, that's a great sampling of this. Listen to what he says. He says, you can edit and interpret the conclusion of modern science as tenderly as you like, it is still quite impossible for us to regard man as child of God, for whom the earth was created as a temporary habitation. Rather, here's his submission, we must regard God as little more, excuse me, we must regard man as little more than a chance deposit on the surface of the world, carelessly thrown up between two ice ages by the same forces that rust iron and ripen corn. Hmm. Now look, I know there's lots of atheists who probably wouldn't put it that coldly, but it's often ignored that the unavoidable truth stemming from that assumption is that if that is true, you can really never talk about anything being good or bad again. Have you thought about that? Why? I, I, I heard Keller uh, years ago use an, uh, an illustration about a, a wristwatch. He said, look, what if someone came to me and said, you know, honestly, I'm not really thrilled with your wristwatch because it's no good for pounding nails. It really didn't help me when I was baking a souffle. And Keller's point is, no one would say that because that's not the purpose of the watch. So that you can't really know a thing, you can't deem it to be good or bad until you know its purpose. And in the same way, if you think that creation just sort of emerged from the primordial slime, meaning it has no ultimate purpose, how are you going to generate a frame of reference to call anything good? And better yet, how are you going to justify your claims to have the knowledge of it, right? Ironically, even the scientific method. I was watching a social media clip recently where an interviewing, interviewer was asking an atheist, what would, he, what would he do or what would he say to God if he got up to heaven and realized he was wrong and God was really there? This is what he says. He says, I would look at God and I would say, what could possibly be the purpose of child cancer or devastating typhoons 
or rampant murder. If you're their God, then you're certainly doing a poor job of running the world. Sort of arrests you, right? But think about the objection for just a second. The, 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 the atheist agrees that child cancer is a bad thing. But the problem is, in his worldview, there's no such thing as bad. It doesn't exist. The point is, is like we're, if we're just molecules in motion, there's no way to refer to something that's evil or even something that's good, for that matter. I actually found myself wondering exactly what he would say to the child cancer victim's family. I mean, think about that. Well, sorry, we're just random molecules in colliding misery, but uh, hey, good luck with your chemo. What? I've, I've said this before. I would rather believe in a God who chooses not to explain to me all the suffering that he allows rather than abandon him for a world where stuff doesn't have any reason at all behind it. So pantheism, legalism, secularism, none of those are the Christian view. Fourthly and finally, cre- creation is finite, not like paganism. You know, in those first three objections, they make too little, or they, uh, too little of creation. This one makes too much of it. You know, the, the paganism, look at the created world. They think it's amazing. They, they, they look at it and they see the creative energies that must be behind it. And you know what they start to do? They worship it. They bow down to it. They start making ideas like, well, you know, I think nature is God. The natural world around us is God. But if Romans chapter 1, like we read in the confession of sin this morning, is true, whenever you decide to make a God of the created order, you're basically become an idolater. And idolatry always cheapens the thing it's worshiping if it's not God. Idolatry will take the thing and it robs, its, uh, robs it of its true beauty and cheapens it. And so Christianity was the one that said, yes, creation is a wonderment, yes, but it's a wonderment only because it points us to the author that's behind it. So you see the point, pantheism, legalism, secularism, paganism, they're all wrong. They all show that the Christianity gives us the best view of creation because it says, this is my father's world. He created this world. He's the mind behind it, which sets us up for some, some, some applications here at the last and third and final point, creation and us. I think there's three things we can draw from that last point. The first one's this. If the doctrine of Christian creation is true, it means that Christians ought to be the ones who are most able to enjoy simple pleasures. We ought to be the best ones at this, whether it's a great sunset or a wonderful meal or gracious company with friends, a quality art, a manicured garden, a concert that blew you away because of the skill of the musician. We ought to be the ones that enjoy that the most. Why? Because we know where it came from. We know what that glory points to. It reminds me of this whole line of teaching that C.S. Lewis did where he said, look, I realize most religious people spend a lot of time talking about the do's and the don'ts. He said, but I think we don't think enough about our pleasures. We need to think carefully about our pleasures just as much as we think about our misery. I mean, why does that music move me the way that it does? Could it be that there's a song that I've been trying to sing all my life, but I just haven't quite made it out? Why do I want, whenever I'm standing over a beautiful mountain vista, to want to leap out into it and maybe fly over it? You ever had that feeling? You see something beautiful, it's just like, ugh. (laughs) 
Why do I have that? Could it be that maybe I was created not just to observe beauty, but to enter into beauty, to become beautiful myself, to see beauty itself, capital B. But the truth of the matter is we always keep missing it. We always miss the goodness of God's creation. On the one hand, we often deny ourselves legitimate pleasures that God created for us to be good, meanwhile creating you know, a lot of guilt and fear in us about any breach of some man-made rule that we created. That's the old fundamentalist mindset at work when we miss the delight that God's got in his world. But of course, on the other hand, let's say we grow out of it and we sort of enjoyed life's delights here. What do we do then? Well, then all of a sudden we take that pleasure as if that's all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry, we think, for tomorrow we'll die. And that's just as depressing as the other. Because here's the problem. If you don't acknowledge creation's source, you are fast on your way to abusing it. There's a lot of people I know who sort of still occupying churches who have shaken off <laughs> their old religious upbringing. I'm not with those crazy people that raised me. But sometimes in our reactionism, we just, we just trade one idol for another. Which brings me to the point, there really are only two options if you're going to follow God as your creator. You're either going to be scared of creation or you're going to be addicted to it. Those are the only options. And, so, and these exactly were Paul's two greatest enemies in the first century. There were those people who were habitual forbidders. These are the ones that believed that Christianity was there so it could get you to say no to everything and anything. It's a negative Christianity. But on the other hand, there were those people who looked at the stuff of this world and simply said, there's no way I can live without that. You see the errors? But here's the point. The God of creation wants you to be free. He wants us to enjoy the things that he has made. But we do so loosely, do we not? Look, it's good that God has provided many of us in this room. Let's be honest, all of us in this room financial, material, relational blessings. But of course, as a Christian, we have a chance to look at those things and see and enjoy God's fingerprint throughout. But as my New Testament professor used to say, he said, yes, you have that Christian freedom, but you also have freedom to give up your freedom. Some of the, I think that's great for us to ask that question. Is there anything that I have given up purely because I love Jesus? When was the last time I did that? Simply to look at that thing and say, you know what? You don't control me. Only Jesus can tell me who I am. But the bottom line is, only in the Christian faith do you have this way to navigate these things between those two difficulties if Jesus is the creator. Second point of application is simply this. And I can do this briefly. Shouldn't Christians, therefore, be the ones who are the most concerned with protecting and conserving God's creation? I really find it a tragedy that, that, that most of the ardent uh, um, ecological defenders of our day are the materialists. And I realize, I know that there are all kinds of debates that people love to have as they interpret the science of ecological care. And I wouldn't even know where to begin on that discussion. My only point is, is if the doctrine of creation is true, <laughs> creation, environmental concern is not a sub-Christian topic left to the secularists. In fact, Christians should be leading the way. You want to know why? Because God has shown up there. 
We care for creation and promote a healthy, reasonable encouragement for the world around us because it's great evangelism. God is showing himself there. I think a consistently green perspective actually ought to be part of a Christian confession when we're thinking about creation. (laughs) He said, anticipating the emails to come this week. Thirdly, though, and this is my final point of application, uh, theologian Alistair McGrath says that the doctrine of creation gives us a chance to feel at home in a world that otherwise would feel way too immense. I realize it's natural to be tempted, and when you look at the created world, to feel like you're just hopelessly obscure. I'm so small, and if I'm small, I must be nothing. But why do I think that? Why do I think that? I held on to a quote years ago. Again, it was surrounding the, 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 the Hubble telescope deep space picture by an online pundit by the name of Jesus Diaz. And he said this, he said, look, this photo, the deep space photo, shows that we are a tiny speck of nothingness in the middle of a fiery cosmic fluff. Sound inviting to you? Of course it doesn't sound inviting to you. And you know what it does, and this shows that I'm getting old and curmudgeonly, is it sounds honestly like a convenient perspective to take on, especially if, oh, I don't know, I kind of want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. If I'm just a bunch of nothingness, who cares? It's kind of logical, actually, if you think about it. But of course, I'm the first one to say, be careful, because that permission cuts both ways. You can't purge your own thinking of any moral constraints and then hold others to moral constraints. What's my point? My point is that creation has to be thought through. It has to be meditated upon. That's why God made it. And it brings us right into the glory of what John is promoting in chapter 1, these first few verses. Because John's going to go on to say, Jesus is the creator. He is the one who spoke the universe into existence. But he's the creator who suffered so that his people, who have become addicted to the creation, can be free from its bondage to decay and its abuse and its creation worship and all the other disaster that we've been applying to it. And if that story about Jesus is true, then no matter what you make of the created world around around you, what you can absolutely say with absolute certainty is that you matter. You are created. There was a mind behind you. And if sin is anything, It is an encouragement to see the things that God created, all the things that he made good, be destroyed. And you may say, well, I don't do any destruction. I don't tear down trees, whatever you're talking about. No, no, no. I'm talking about the voice inside your head that's trying to destroy you. I'm talking about the shame instinct. Because look, it's one thing to to say, oh, did we we love the trees? We love a sunset. Bless us. We should go have a good meal. Yes, I'm saying all of that. But there's also something about that voice inside my head that speaks to me in ways which you would never speak to anybody else. And God is saying, Jesus is saying, I'm going to free you of that as well. Because yes, everything around you I created, but that includes you. You matter. I know how small you feel. I know how inadequate you feel. I know how little you feel. And every time you dive in the world around you, it makes you feel smaller. But you know what? I still have my eyes on you. And everything that you see, even the James Webb telescope stuff, you ready for this? It's all yours. I made it for you. So go dive into it. Go dive into it and see. 
is find the very things that would cause the hymn writers to write hymns like this. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and around me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hand these wonders wrought. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, they declare their maker's praise. It's my favorite line. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Hey, that's a great invitation, isn't it? Have you heard the voice of the created world around you? Have you muted it? Have you ignored it? Are you running away from it? Hey, don't do that. <laughs> Listen to that voice. If places like Psalm 19 are to be believed, it's kind of speaking loudly. The heavens declare the glory of God. Nature shows forth his handiwork. Day into day it pours forth speech and night after night. There's no place where its voice is not heard. Have you listened for the voice of the creator? Because the responsibility of everybody in this room who's listened to this text is to think through what it means that this is God's world. And for that reason, I owe him that consideration. I wonder how that would change our week if we thought through that. Let's pray. Then Lord Jesus, lead us up into it. Let us see your world differently. We thought that it was just a pretty garden, but it wasn't something incredible. We thought that it was just a sunset from the clouds coming in a certain way we did, and we analyzed it. But it's actually you screaming at us. We see human invention. We see technology. We're doing the most amazing things, and we forget that it's all pointing us towards you. And, of course, we abuse it and misuse it and abuse each other, and worst of all, ourselves. So we need for us to see you and to see how it is that you've made us. Father, if you don't do anything for us this week, would you show us that you shine in all that's fair? Because if you did, we'd be changed. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.